Hi, beautiful listeners. Welcome to the Teacher Healer podcast, where we get to geek out on all things education and heal the world at the same time. Dr. Douglas Reeves has worked with education, business, nonprofit, and government organizations throughout the world. He is the author of more than 30 books and 80 articles on leadership and organizational effectiveness and has won numerous prestigious awards for his contributions to education. Listen to Doug and I chat about his research on success in high poverty schools and learn practical teaching and leadership tips based on decades of his own experience and evidence-based perspectives. Hi, Doug. Thank you for joining us on the Teacher Healer podcast. It's such a privilege to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Um, so I guess I've just heard your, a bit about your bio, but I'd like to hear from you. What do you think are your greatest achievements in your career so far? Um, I guess if I've done anything right, it's to make a special point of thanking my own teachers, uh, particularly now, but really for decades our teachers at every level have meant so much to us. And one of the things I always ask my readers and listeners to do is um, not so much to focus on me, but rather focus on the teachers who brought them to our profession and make a point of thanking them. And I have tried to make that uh, that debt of gratitude a, a pretty consistent discipline. That's pretty sweet. That's lovely. Did you have any shout outs to anyone in particular while you've got the chance? Well, well, I, I, <laughs> one of my best experiences with Mrs. Gunzelman, who was my fifth grade teacher, and I, I used to read my letter to her to audiences saying, and then give them a homework assignment to go, go home and thank that teacher. And I was uh, giving a presentation in a large university in the Midwest, and Mrs. Gunzelman, long retired at that point, was in the audience. And it was so great to have everyone around her recognize her and, and give Aww. her the rather than me. That's so lovely. I, I'd love to have that opportunity. I've got some teachers in mind that that would be just a joyous thing to share with them. Yeah. Um, so what's coming up for you? What are you working on? I'm deeply involved in, in research on psychological safety, and I need to say right at the top, uh, the, the scholar to read on this is uh, Dr. Amy Edmondson at the Harvard Business School. Uh, for 30 years, she has now done this work on psychological safety in medicine in hospitals, and I really tried to apply her work to my work in schools uh, on psychological safety. But it's always important to honor the shoulders on which we stand, and Amy is certainly the, mm. uh, the, the premier scholar in the field. So I, I wrote this book, Fearless Schools, about the essence of psychological safety in schools in a sentence that's all about, is it a safe place to make mistakes for students, for staff, for administrators? Because if you're fearful, you can't learn. So it's got to be a safe place to make mistakes and learn from them. From that first book, then I published Fearless Coaching, Fearless Grading. Next to come out is Fearless Classrooms, which I'm feverishly working on right now. When I finish that, it's Fearless Leadership. So it's a whole series all around the theme of fearlessness and psychological safety, which the world needs right now in schools and probably every other domain as well. How wonderful. I look forward to seeing that Fearless Classrooms one come out myself. Um, 
Can I ask just a quick question on that? You've uh, used the word fearless uh, as your, I suppose, branding for what you're doing. Um, not courage. Was there a reason that you went for fearless? Yes, because the it, it's the research on this uh, topic is a double-edged sword. Um, yes, you want to have courageous people, but the reason that I'm using fearless is that in a astonishing majority of of schools, classrooms, board meetings, um, there is an atmosphere of fear. And one of the things that my friend Nancy Fry observes is that walk into a classroom and see what really gets noticed. She argues. It's the right answers, oh, good boy, that gets resolved rather than when a student has a wrong answer, staying with that and have learning happen in real time and move from the courageous student who can raise his or her hand, make a wrong answer, and then get uh, learning in real time to the right answer. But I've got to tell you, I think, I think fear still pervades a lot of faculty meetings and a lot of classrooms. Yeah, I unfortunately do agree with you. And it, it's certainly a theme that's been coming across when I've been talking to teachers lately. Um, that's a really interesting thought as well, that idea of rewarding the courage and not encouraging fear at the same time by, I suppose, staying with those brave souls who try and and don't always make it. Absolutely. And, and, and to be very practical with our Listeners, I think it's really important that we emulate what primary teachers do very frequently, and that's the use of equity sticks, where every student has a name and oftentimes a picture on a, on a little stick, and the teacher will pose a question. Everybody take a minute to think time, so the teacher has 100% engagement, and then will, is she going to pick me? Is she going to pick me? hand round and round the bowl, pulls out a, a stick. So it's all random. It's not just hands in the air. And the problem is, is that that oftentimes takes place in the primary grades, but the older students get, the less likely it is that a teacher will engage in random calling. And I understand their reluctance to do that. They don't want students to be put in the spot, to be embarrassed, to have a meltdown. But there are ways that we can do that that are emotionally safe. You can, for example, say, hey, if you're called on and you don't know the answer, you can ask for a minute of think time. You can phone a friend. You can answer a question with a question. There's plenty of ways to make that safe. And I have seen this tactic of equity sticks used in secondary classrooms, in college classrooms. It is one of the best ways to maintain 100% engagement by students. Yeah, brilliant. I, I've have been in a few primary school classrooms lately, and I have certainly seen the little tubs of sticks, but I think you're right. It's about how you're using them that is most important. And I wonder how often some of those strategies are applied. But it sounds a little bit like a who wants to be a millionaire type thing, which I think is good fun as well, a bit of gamification in there. So um, we had a chat before today, and uh, your fearless books um a lot of the research you've done so far has been around high poverty schools, success in high poverty schools. Um, just like, how did you come into that? Where, where, where did that come from a, for you? It's, it's a pretty great story. I was doing a large scale study at about a 135 schools. And typically if you can envision a graph where there's um, student achievement on the vertical axis, and then uh, the percentage of, students in poverty on the horizontal axis, it goes straight down from upper left to lower right. 
In other words, the higher the poverty, the lower the achievement. But then in looking at all this data, I found this little scattering of schools in the upper right-hand quadrant, which were high poverty and high achievement. And the impulse of the observers was, gee, there must be a mistake in the data. And so not only did we rerun the data, but I actually visited the schools. What's different about this group of unusual high poverty, high achieving schools? And what I found were some very consistent practices that allowed them to be successful. And since that original work was done, it's been replicated many times by other authors who I certainly want to acknowledge, uh, people like uh, Karen Chenoweth, Heather Zadowski, uh, Stephen Graham, and others. But the bottom line is, it wasn't about poverty and it wasn't about funding. In this, in this study, for example, they had the same union bargaining agreement. They had the same per-pupil funding. They had the same teacher assignment policy. All those variables were the same. What was different was their practices. And it came down to just a few things, things like um, lots of nonfiction writing in the high success schools, whereas in the lower success schools, they were if they did writing at all, it was very low expectation, acrostics, haikus, and things that didn't demand much of the students. They had collaborative scoring, so all the teachers agreed on what proficiency really looked like when it came to student work. Uh, this laser-like focus on student achievement, it's what they talked about, not just in meetings, but even casually. And the administrators gave teachers time to do this kind of collaboration. So in, in a nutshell, I, I think that's, uh, I, I guess if I could add one other thing, they were intently focused on what the students needed. They were not bes uh, beset with the typical dozens and dozens of different academic programs, focused on five or six things that really worked well for them. So that's what I learned, and, and I've spent the last few decades trying to replicate that and learn more about it. And in, in, in my latest research on that subject, it's not just high poverty schools that were doing these core behaviors. Some of the best international schools, some of the wealthiest independent schools are doing the same thing. Nonfiction writing, collaborative scoring, all those other characteristics you see in the best schools in the world, whether they're high or low poverty. So that makes you wonder why those aren't happening in the low achieving high poverty schools. It certainly does. <laughs> that raises some questions. Um, sounds like a bit of a low expectation environment, perhaps. I'll throw that question mark out there. Well, there, there's plenty of blame to, to go around. Some of it is low expectations, but mm. you know, I'll just use the the United States environment from which I'm speaking right now. There's this big focus on the science of reading, and nobody disagrees that reading programs ought to be evidence based. But it is astonishing to me that many, many millions of dollars U.S. are being thrown at the science of reading. And sometimes that excludes nonfiction writing, which particularly for students who are not speaking their uh, English at home, writing is one of the most effective things that we can do to make it emotionally safe for students to express what they know, including express what they know about reading. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm not in, into blaming teachers. There's policymakers and administrators all over the place who who will jump on whatever bandwagon is new. Next year, it'll probably be a different uh, shiny ornament on the tree. And they all forget to do the basics. So all is too strong a word, but many of them do. And so uh, I, I think it's a, uh, it, it's a policy issue, a leadership issue, and a teacher issue. We all need to share in, in how we can get better at this. Multi-level, yeah. 
Just listening to you talk about that graph, how it came up with those sort of so-called anomalies, um, that's just, I suppose, a lesson for us all to just think about when we're looking at data. We've all got school data and learning data, not to strike things out so quickly. Um, yeah, because you've it's led you down a very interesting path, which I think is a good lesson. Um, so I just want to go back to a little bit. You were talking about these this fearlessness in the classroom and making mistakes safe and psychological safety. Can you just talk me through that a little bit in more in depth around, yeah, your understanding of psychological safety in schools and classrooms? Sure. And and I, I want to put myself in the shoes of, of the new classroom teacher who hears the administrator's footsteps or maybe the instructional coach or some <laughs> other evaluator coming down the hallway. And before the door is open, I say, okay, kids, you know the drill. Act like you're paying attention to me. Maria, I'm calling on you because I know you've got the right answers and let's put on a good show. And and we've all seen that where there's an observer who is expecting to see the show rather than what's really in a fearless classroom, the most engaging classroom, is, um, is a little bit of chaos in which mistakes are made. The teacher lingers a while with the student who made a mistake, literally going from lack of understanding to deep understanding in real time. If we only call on students who have the right answer, and we all know who those reliable students are, that's not learning. They knew the answers when they walked in the classroom door. And all I'm doing is acting like the the ringmaster at at, at the circus rather than having students really develop learning in real time. A fearless classroom is all about going from lack of understanding to deep understanding in real time. And by the way, that's not just among students. That's true for adults as well. We've all been in staff meetings where the leader will say any questions, clearly implying that he does not want to hear any questions, and then moving on. When in fact, all of us have been in meetings where we do have questions and we do have challenges. And we will, uh, good adult learning thrives on a divergent thinking environment. If you were in a graduate classroom of mine, I would assign half the room to say, Doug is crazy and wrong because the other half to say, well, maybe he's not so bad because that kind of divergent thinking is where adult learning thrives. So this idea of fearlessness is not just about third graders. It's about adults, too. I love that technique. I kind of want to try that in my next class just to get all the kids sort of thinking, oh, is the teacher wrong or is the teacher? Why is the teacher right? (laughs) I love that. And I think it's really important as well for for adults to to do that. Yeah. Um, so I guess I guess when you're saying psychological safety, you want you're wanting to create a school where people aren't trying to be perfect. Exactly. You know, um, perfection is is an illusion. Number one, um, even though a lot of students have been groomed from a very early age, you're going to be valedictorian 15 years from now. So. You know, anything less than an A plus humiliates your family. And this is a real serious issue, not um, you know, it, uh, around the world. I've, I've worked in schools where there are student, student suicides among A students because they were not A plus students. And they bring shame on their family because they got accepted to Yale, but not at Harvard. And it, I'm not being flip here. This is real stuff that happens around the world. And I think this concept of it's okay to make a mistake and learn from a mistake is something that not only is essential for learning, but it's essential for the emotional and mental health of our students. 
Well, I mean, that's it, isn't it? They're, they're, they're at school to learn anyway. They're not expected to come kitted out with all the, you know, the downloads from the internet that they needed. <laughs> I'm, I'm smiling so broadly when you said that because <laughs> you know, what, what happens is is in schools, uh, particularly when they're using reporting on student competencies or, or the achievement of standards, uh, it's September and October and of course, they haven't met them yet, but the teacher will report that, hey, you're on the way, you're getting there. And a parent will come in and say, but she's always made straight A's. You know, what's wrong? How can you say that my child isn't perfect? And all we can say with gentleness and respect to those parents is um, the reason they come to school is to learn. And they haven't learned all these things yet. I promise you that they will by the end of the term, but but they haven't yet. And that's a really hard pill for some perfectionist parents to swallow yeah it sure sure is on an interesting side note i was reading an article um the other day where they're saying in china they've um they've cancelled all tutoring they've they've banned it it's off the radar now because it wasn't being used to help behind kids catch up it was for those a's to a plus kids and it was putting too much pressure on them so the whole government's just like nah we're not, we're not blanket ban. We're not doing tutoring outside of school anymore, which I just think is the most fascinating thing. Well, um, I, I, I read that as well. And, and I speak, from, I, I was a teacher in China and published a couple of books in Chinese. Mm. Uh, all I can say with deep respect to the government is good luck with that. My friend, when you've got a couple of thousand years of a heritage that, that elevates uh, student performance way above whoever the current government happens to be, uh, I don't think they're going to expunge uh, that culture in a, with a decree. No, and they, they run the risk of, um, I suppose, becoming laid back Australians within a few generations. As well. So <laughs> <laughs> I, hope, I hope it doesn't completely backfire either. Um, okay, so something we were talking about last time I wanted you to go into was about extrinsic and intrinsic motivation for students in high poverty schools. Um, can you just talk me through a bit of that? Sure. The, the, the psychological literature is clear that intrinsic motivation is better than extrinsic motivation. And so if we just leave it at that dichotomy, I fear that it's a little too simplistic, but to be fair to first represent the literature on this, when we solely rely on rewards, extrinsic motivation, what happens is the following. Today's reward becomes tomorrow's entitlement. In fact, there's been some really brilliant research done on this that shows that when students are rewarded and then the reward worked, they got better, then the reward was taken away. They did not continue the behavior that led to the reward. They actually regress. So mm-hmm. no doubt that intrinsic is better than extrinsic, doing it for the love of learning. That's why a well-designed assessment, for example, is not just about a score. A well-designed assessment is all about engagement. I would have students in my mathematics classes, for example, design their ideal school, and they'd have to turn in a two-dimensional diagram that would show not only their mastery of, of scale and ratio and irregular and regular polygons and so on, but also deeply engaged them in what they thought the criteria for a good school was. I did another one on business planning, um, had lots of algebra in it, but it wasn't the algebra that engaged them. It was the business. However, that said, here's, here's where the intrinsic extrinsic dichotomy falls apart. You can't get to these really engaging standards if you can't add, subtract, multiply, and divide. So a little bit of extrinsic motivation 
to enter the problem is, I think, worth it if then you can get to the intrinsic motivation of I'm doing it because I love it. I'll, I'll illustrate with an example. My mm-hmm. eldest son played the cello and uh, we would go to these uh, Suzuki conferences where a wise 80 plus year old woman was on the stage and we were all asking, what's the key to getting our kids to practice the cello? And she thought for a moment and answered Fruit Loops, which is an American based a cereal that looks like Cheerios with the hole in the middle. And she, uh, she said, uh, you know, you, you take 10 Fruit Loops each time they play a scale correctly, you move one, then the second, then the third. When they do 10 in a row, you let them eat the Fruit Loops. Now, that is classic extrinsic motivation. But the point that she was trying to make is if you want them to play a Bach cello suite in G major, then the first thing you got to do is let them know where the strings are and let them know what the notes are. So her point was there's not this neat dichotomy. Sometimes extrinsic uh, goes before intrinsic to really get to the deep love of music or mathematics or English or whatever it is that we're teaching. Yeah. So, I mean, to summarize boldly, <laughs> would would you say that extrinsic motivation for the, I suppose, the nuts and bolts, boring skills stuff is effect, is sort of more effective, but then we should up ourselves a level with our curriculum de- delivery to make that more intrinsically motivating once they have those skills. You, you said that very well. And I, <laughs> I just, I, I kind of, you know, resist it, it. There are so many things in education where people say it's either or when in fact, a lot of things are both. And, and so mm. I, I appreciate the way that you summarize that. Oh, okay. Very interesting. Um, so I suppose that leads me naturally onto the topic of gamification because we're so into stickers and rewards and leveling up. And uh, we know that this creates addictive behaviors at the moment in lots of young people. And I know we're certainly battling that in almost every classroom around that I've been in um, recently. So what are your thoughts of sort of applying some of those gamification rules into an education process? Um, well, I, I, I do want to confess to being deeply conflicted about this. And before I start, let me, let me recommend a couple of resources for your listeners. Um, the first one is, is reclaiming conversation, reclaiming conversation. It's by Sherry Turkle, T-U-R-K-L-E. And what professor Turkle writes about is how we have kids who have been weaned on screens since their toddler days and are unable to have human conversations. And so she makes the argument in her book, Reclaiming Conversation, that students have to be able to uh, actually shut down the computer, turn off their device, and have a human conversation. She's watched students lose fellowships, lose jobs, because they're checking their social media feed during an interview, which seems crazy to me, but that's the reality of this year. Now, the footnote is that Professor Turkle teaches at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, across the river from where I live, and you know, that's a pretty, pretty good school where they really care a lot about computers. But even at MIT, you have to shut down the computers. The other author I want to commend to your listeners is um, the, the, the title is Stolen Focus. Stolen Focus. The author is Hari, H-A-R-I. And he makes a very persuasive case that for the children that we serve at the primary and secondary grades, the dramatic rise in ADHD is directly related to the use of screens. So let me just, you know, acknowledge the research of others before I talk about my my own. Mm -hmm. Um, All I can say is when it comes to gamification, 
we, we need to take the best and leave the rest. We all know that there are problems with electronic games, including uh, inappropriate um, sexual um, re, um, se- uh, sexual uh, images, inappropriate violent images that I think we, we need to reject. However, there are other things that do attract kids to those games, even without the bad parts, and that is immediate feedback. So when you play a game and you die at the end, students don't cry and go home. They say, hey, I can get to the next level because the immediate feedback is specific and immediate and it's better each time. That's what really attracts kids in the gamification model. Now, finally, I would just say you don't need an electronic game to apply the gamification um, learnings in a classroom. What all of us can do, for example, instead of a 30-item test is to go to a three-item test providing immediate feedback, just like an electronic game does, during the same class period, immediate support, immediate reinforcement. And when you make a mistake, like everybody does in an electronic game, you can immediately learn from that mistake. I can get to the next level. I can get back. So I guess all I'm saying is the, the, the appeal of gamification is not dependent upon the use of electronics. The appeal of gamification is rather dependent upon the use of immediate and specific feedback. That's what students crave so that they can get better. Right. Yeah. So this is a bit of a hill I'll die on, okay? Um, It's that I've noticed a lot of unfinished work happening when when kids are doing projects and things like that. They think it's great. They put together this little booklet, and I'm like, yeah, you might be in grade three, but you can do so much better if you just redrafted that. And, you, <laughs> you know, um, and I know that um, a lot of teachers are a bit afraid of giving critical feedback, asking them to do it again, um, you know, but that's our job. Like that is our job to give that feedback, to say, mm, I mean, this could be improved if you did this. How about you give it a crack? And not just letting it sit at like a C grade when they could be doing better at like, especially if you're doing like um, public stalls and having your parents invited and you're doing those big project presentations, like half done work, in my opinion, is just the epitome of us not giving feedback and letting them grow with it. So what you're saying then is kids actually crave that. Well, I, I think what you have just beautifully expressed is, is the kind of feedback that really works is feedback that leads the students to the next level. And that is mm. why one-shot assignments are awful. For example, I will use my own classrooms. Uh, you, you cannot get more than half credit on your first assignment. Uh, and the reason is I worked really hard to give feedback. I think feedback deserves respect. And so I don't care if you're the valedictorian. Everybody has to take the feedback from the first assessment and then redo it based on the feedback that they have. I had wonderful teachers who did that for me, and I've tried to replicate that in classrooms, literally from primary classrooms all the way to postdoctoral students. You always have to redo work. I'm a fairly well-published author. I've never had the first draft of anything accepted. I always Mm. have to do it again in respect to feedback. And I would just add for our listeners, you know, many of you are classroom educators and you work really hard. You're up until 10 o'clock at Sunday night, grading papers, providing feedback, And if it's a one-shot assignment, do you think that your students pick it up and say, oh, thank you, teacher, for that wonderfully specific feedback. I shall return home and do this again. No, they won't. 
No, they won't. They just look at the grade and throw it in the trash. If, if you work hard to give feedback, your feedback deserves respect. And the way that you get respect for that is knowing that every student has to read your feedback, take it to heart, and resubmit the work. Right. I just had a little thought there about all this. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about burnout and teacher time and not having enough of it. And English teachers, I think, are just saddled with kind of the worst of it because they're constantly marking a million essays and stuff, especially in the senior years. And and I'm like, yeah, what's the point of spending all that time and energy on something that actually, especially exams and things like that, when that feedback isn't being taken on board. It's not able to be applied. It, it's actually a waste of time. You may as well not do it. Whereas if you're giving them that chance to resubmit, then you're getting value. You're getting bang for your buck. You're going to feel rewarded from seeing the improvement as well. Well, you are so right. And, and let me just give you some very, very specific examples. Uh, you're, you're, our, our teachers in English certainly do bear uh, the worst of it because they're grading lots of papers that is time-consuming. But I think the mistake sometimes that is made is that they assume that the teacher is the only person in the classroom qualified to give feedback. Mm -hmm. A really well-written scoring guide or rubric will allow every student, if it's written in appropriate student accessible language, to give feedback to themselves, to each other, uh, and ultimately to the teacher. Uh, I have experimented with this as well, where you don't accept an assignment that doesn't have a self-assessment first. And so one way that I could cut my grading time in half is that when the student self-assessment is on top, then all I have to do is mark where I disagree with the student's self-assessment. If, if I agree with them, I don't need to tell them what they already know. I just want to focus on what they're misunderstanding about the criteria for the assignment. So that student self-assessment is one big idea. None, another big idea that I've seen in both English and math and science is doing practice in class. We, we have this illusion that we all have to take the odd-numbered problems 1 through 30 and do them at home. No, you don't. Students can get out of their chair, do the problems on, imagine all four walls of the classroom are covered in either whiteboards or papers, and they do the problems right then. They get immediate and specific feedback. And I've seen English teachers do the same thing. Not, we're going to write an essay, but rather we're going to write a topic sentence or we're going to write a transition or we're going to write a compelling conclusion. They're focused on a very specific part of writing. And again, out of their chairs, all around the classroom, that's where the teacher can give immediate feedback. And the final thing I would just say to respect teacher time is what I would call mini assessments. Instead of the 30 or 40 item assessment, instead of the full essay, really break it down into very specific minor parts so that I can give immediate specific feedback. And I know teachers who, who have been very reluctant to say, oh, Doug, don't we have to do homework? No, you don't. Uh, and I, one of my favorite teachers, Mr. Dahl, is a teacher who has medically fragile kids, and, and he can't just take a bunch of work home and spend hours at night and hours in the weekend doing this. But he also has some of the highest test scores, literally a zero failure rate. I just talked to him for a few weeks ago a zero failure rate because what he does is he gets the practice done in class. So I think that's respectful of teachers, but it's also respectful of the evidence in favor of specific and immediate feedback. I love that. I'm actually a homework refuser. 
I I don't like giving homework. The only homework I'll ever give my students is stuff that is skills practice, and it's something that they need to do for maybe ten minutes a day. If because I'm a music teacher, that works for them. But you know, I won't give them assignments to take home. They'll do it in class with me, um, and I then also don't mark at home. If I have any marking I need to do, I do it in the classroom where possible. Otherwise, I use my spare periods at school to do it. Um, and here's the homework I want to give our listeners before we move on is how can you cut down your feedback and assessment time by playing it smart with some of those little tips there. Um, I really love that self-assessment first um, guideline. Have you checked it first before you hand it in? Love that. Um, Yeah, that's your challenge. Cut your feedback time in half (laughs) um, this week or or this month. Um, Okay, so... I was talking a bit earlier, Doug, about the hill that I would die on. Uh, what's the hill that you would die on for improving education? Um, so I know this is going to sound very, you know, low level. I, I, it, it, the hill I'm going to die on should be some like grand educational theory. You know, <laughs> it, the, the, the one I will absolutely die on is stopping the use of the average to calculate final grades. If you can do that one thing, then you eliminate all kinds of problems that go all the way to discipline, to dropouts, to attendance and everything else. That's the lever. And what most electronic grading systems um, do, and those are the people with whom I'm happy to do battle, is they automatically default to the average. And particularly now, what I would think is after, and I I know your country had some pretty draconian shutdowns as, as ours did, when our kids literally lost a year or more being out of school, we spent a lot of time on social and emotional learning. We want our t- kids to learn during this pandemic per- persistence, perseverance, resilience. Every time you use the average, you're saying, oh, all that stuff we said about social and emotional learning, forget about it. doesn't matter because at the end of the term, I'm going to punish you for the mistakes you made three months earlier. And that is the opposite of resilience and perseverance. We want to make sure that the average, that, that what teachers need to be responsible for is assessing students in their performance against their learning requirements at the time the grade is awarded, not the average of the previous several months. So if I had to pick one thing, that that is it. And I have many friends, I've written a few books on grading and you know many of my friends in this field have as well, but the problem is they overcomplicate it. They have the 40 ideas or the 15 ideas that you have to do to uh, to improve grading that just becomes overwhelming. And that's because many of those ideas are never implemented. If you had to pick one thing, get rid of the average. Yeah. Can we just wind that back a bit, Doug, for the teachers who are like, I'm still not quite hundred percent sure what you mean by that. Or I'm from a country where that doesn't happen. You just explain just a bit more detail what the average averaging of marks is. Well, let us imagine a, um, just a four point scale because I, I know that letters and numbers don't always correspond and you have an international audience. So we'll just use one, two, three, four with one being, you know, you're just beginning and four meaning you're, you're at the advanced stage of, of rigor and complexity. So let's imagine a student who during a particular term has got uh, three grades of one and then three grades of two and then three grades of three and three grades of four. And, if you're really grading students at, at how they f- finish the term, that student that we just Im- imagined 
three grades of one, three grades of two, three grades of three, three grades of four, that student will have earned a four or an A or whatever the top level is. But in the vast majority of schools that use electronic grading systems, that would never happen. They would average all those, which means that the progress that they made doesn't matter. And that great learning and great teaching that happened doesn't matter. All they'll do is average those, and the student will probably wind up with something like a 2.5 or maybe a 3. That is fundamentally inaccurate. Um, Mm -hmm. I also think that that what we have to do is to think about the other implications of using the average because it happens at the end of the school year. Every year around the world, a student will say 60 days before the term ends, hey, whatever I do doesn't matter. I've already earned a failing grade. No, No reason to show up leads to chronic absenteeism, leads to discipline problems. We need to teach, if we really believe in resilience, we need to teach this ethic of the race is not over until the bell rings. And we always have to stay in there and persist. And frankly, for us as teachers, I think what we have to do is to say, uh, we, we need to make sure that that all the support and feedback that we provide throughout the year still matters. It doesn't stop mattering in the last couple of months of the term. It always matters until we really finish. And all I can tell you is, you know, the, the schools that I've observed, and there's a lot of them, who have stopped using the average have a dream. Thanks for listening to the Teacher Healer podcast. Find more episodes and information at www.teacherhealer.com. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate us or refer us to your friends and colleagues. And if you care about saving the world from plastic, click on the Zero Co link in the show notes to learn what you can do to help.